this is Beth. And this is Jeff. And this is your Enneagram Coach, the podcast, where we're here to help you to understand yourself with astonishing clarity so that you can break free from self-condemnation, fear, and shame by knowing and experiencing the unconditional love, forgiveness, and freedom in Christ. Thank you, everyone, for joining us um, to the Your Enneagram Coach podcast, where we're talking today about um, misunderstood types. And specifically today, we're going to be talking to uh, male type twos. So these are male type twos, and they're going to share about their experience. Uh, Bethy, what do you think are some of the misunderstanding of men who are type twos? What are some of the stereotypes? Well, yeah, I think it has more to do with culture, right? Mm-hmm. So we could be in a different culture, and there's going to be maybe less misunderstanding. But in America at least in the last several hundred years, you need to be more, um, in, in a male sense, you need to be more mind, not less heart. You need to be business, less caring. And so for male type twos, they are in the feeling triad and they literally feel other people's needs and they know what those needs are and they want to act on those needs. Um, and so a lot of men that aren't a type two or maybe in the heart triad, they may not necessarily have that same intuition and pull and draw to others. And so it can be very confusing. And so then when uh, a male type two is growing up and they literally feel other people's feelings and know what they need, it's confusing from a cultural standpoint of, but I don't see a lot of males doing this. And so there's this cultural tension and yet it's such a beautiful gift that our male type twos offer. And so sometimes it's hard for uh, men to see that they are a type two based on this. And plus I would also say a lot of the literature on type twos is probably written more kind of from the female type two vantage point. So that's why, you know, we want to take time on this episode to not just clear the air, but actually give give insight to what it's like to be a two, especially a male two. So there's no more misunderstandings. Like this is the twos that we love and we cherish. So on today's episode, we have uh, three great men um, that we are friends with and uh, have come, had the privilege of getting to know. Uh, and so why don't we start first with just some introductions. So I'm going to Mark McElmurray, a dear friend from our college days. Um, and so, Mark, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, we know met Jeff and Beth back at the University of Kansas, early 90s, when I was on staff with the Navigators there, and they were students. And then I moved into, after Kansas and after being there, I moved to, the, I moved to uh, St. Louis at Covenant Seminary to get my master's in counseling, and I have stayed here ever since. I was the associate dean for 10 years and have been the dean of students for the past two. We have three adult children and going to be a grandpa this summer. So that's exciting news in our house. Oh, that's that's awesome. Uh, next is Sawyer Witted. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Sawyer. Yeah, so I am from Pennsylvania. Um, I grew up about an hour north of Philly with seven siblings. Um, so I'm one of eight kids, uh, which is just insane. Uh, I'm number six, so I'm towards the younger. Um, That's a uh, big family, Sawyer. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's It's been a lot of fun. Um, it's been kind of crazy, but it's been a lot of fun. And most of us are sure. pretty close, which is really nice, too. I played piano since I was seven. Um, so I got my degree um, from Cairn University uh, right outside of Philly. Uh in worship and music, and then in Bible, I, I did a dual degree, and I'm just finishing up my master's degrees now in music as well. And um, yeah, I'm also an Enneagram coach with you guys, certified through IEC. Um, so I got certified last fall, which has been super great, and started up my own business with coaching in January, uh, which has been going great so far. So yeah, and I'm really That's excited awesome. to be here. Now, part of your uh, degree is this last project that you're working on, mm-hmm. which is a a noble project. Uh, I know that our coaches have appreciated it, but why don't you tell people about what it is you're working on? Sure. Yeah. So I'm actually composing um, nine songs for all the nine types, um, similar to kind of what Ryan O'Neill did with Sleeping at Last, um, but in yes. my own style. Um, I really mm-hmm. appreciate <laughs> Ryan O'Neill's music, um, but I have a different style than he does. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I feel incredibly passionate about um, helping people be understood um, making them felt yeah. understood and um, and known, and so I think that music is 
a wonderful way that can kind of transcend words oftentimes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of want to just use this and, um, and hopefully it's going to be a blessing to people. So yeah, it's been really yeah. exciting. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Lori. Mm-hmm. And then the last one on the list is uh, Mark Fitzy. Mark is actually Beth's brother. And so whenever Beth and I first met, uh, I couldn't remember her last name, nor could I remember how to spell it to look it up in the KU directory. This was um, before email, before, like, this is ancient times. Yeah, that's right. So I ended up asking a friend who was in, uh, at the time, Campus Crusade, or now Crew, uh, who also was hitting on Beth at the time. I didn't know that. But asking, like, hey, do you know a Beth and, and Crew? And uh, do you know how I could get in touch with her? And so we found it out. And then I... Married her and gave her a good name that people can remember. (laughs) So, Mark, why don't you tell us, our audience, a little bit about yourself? Yeah. um, So I'm currently the uh, uh, co-director of the uh, counseling program at uh, Covenant uh, Seminary. And um, I went there as well with you guys, of course, and uh, Mm -hmm. got a a, um, MDiv in a uh, counseling degree. And I do uh, private practice as well on the side yeah well and then you got your phd you're like the forever student i am the forever (laughs) student hopefully done by now (laughs) i'm not sure your wife or family would let you pursue another degree (laughs) no we're done i'm done (laughs) i'm done i find it um i find it so interesting that you both have uh degrees in counseling because uh my plan in the next uh you know five years or so is to to get some form of training in counseling or therapy, because I, I want to be using that as well. Yeah, and as a director of a counseling uh, program in graduate school, um, a lot of the men in our program are twos, probably twos, sixes, uh, and nines are the ones I see mm-hmm. often. There's also ones, but they often have you know a two wing, uh, mm-hmm. so forth. So that's pretty typical of the men that I see. It'd be really interesting if we ever had a research arm to look yeah. at. What, how, what types gravitate to what uh, types of uh, fields. Yeah. So, Beth, before we dive into these other questions uh, and learning more about their stories, why don't you tell us a little bit about the heart um, that drives the type 2? Like, how do we know when we're with a type 2? Yeah, so we always go back to the core motivations. And so for the type 2s, they're going to fear being worthless, not needed, inconsequential, disposable. And the biggest thing for the type 2 is to be rejected. Um, They also fear being unwanted and loved. So what they're desiring is to be loved, wanted, and appreciated. But they're going to struggle with the core weakness of pride. And this isn't just like, oh, I've got got it all figured out. No, it's actually a denying of their own needs and emotions and focusing solely on the needs and emotions of others. They have this amazing ability to read a room, to read a person, and to literally know how they're feeling and actually feel it themselves and also know what the needs are. And then they know how to move into it. Though with the core weakness of pride, they do have pride in that they know and they move into that person's life. Sometimes not even the person really wanting it quite yet because they know this is the need and they want to serve and help. And it all comes back to wanting to feel appreciated, loved and wanted. And so for the two, they'll, they'll negate their own needs and emotions so that they can help others because their greatest fear is, well, if I know other people's feelings and needs and I don't move into helping them, people are going to see that I know, and they're going to think I'm being selfish. And if I'm being selfish and people see this as selfishness, they're going to reject me, which is their greatest fear. So they feel compelled to move towards these people that they know need their help. But their core longing, the message their heart longs to hear is you are wanted and loved. And that is the message that the two is longing for. That's why they move into these um, spaces of people's needs and felt emotions to hear that you are wanted and loved. Not because you actually did something for me, but you are loved and wanted. And that's the greatest thing about the gospel message is that Christ saw that you had a need, that you couldn't do anything for yourself or anyone else for that matter to fix this need. But Christ comes and says to the type two, you are loved and wanted, not based off on anything you've done, but solely based on everything I've done for you. So for you guys, uh, and anybody, we can go in any order here, but when did you first come to an understanding that you were a type two and what was it that really sealed the deal for you? I'll start. Um, 
It was in uh, seminary my second year. Um, I met this wonderful woman, Molly Feltz, um, and we were friends and then we dated and then got, she's now my wife, but she came in and was talking about this thing that looked like a pentagram um, (laughs) and looked really dangerous and so forth. But uh, she started to talk about it and it was really, um, really great, fascinating and so forth. And as I read, you know, the, the you know descriptions type two just popped out and it was like oh my gosh that is me it was kind of almost creepy because it was like somebody looked in you know journals or something of mine um and it just nailed it and so that was really kind of the beginning and then of course we have talked about it um even on uh, uh family trips and nights we all kind of geek out sure. which is kind of weird but <laughs> and we all talk about it but that was kind of uh, the beginning. So about 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and that's so true, you know, and kind of finding your type and it's been, and we'll get into this a little bit later of how families experience male twos and twos in general. So we'll get kind of into that because, you know, there's a lot, lot to be said there. I think a lot, there's a lot of confusion when it comes around that, but uh, Mark Malcolm Murray, why don't you share when you uh, realized that you were type two? Well, it was actually about eight years ago, someone introduced me to it, this thing called the Enneagram, which I had no idea what it was. And so I ended up taking a test, paid for a test uh, online, got the test results back. And I read that uh, reading about being a two, it's like, yeah, that really describes me. Then I kind of put it on the shelf. And then a few years ago, probably three or four years ago, with uh, The Road Back to You, Ian Cron's book. When I picked that up, I think my daughter or someone recommended it. I picked that up, and when I read on what it's like to be a two, those 20 things, it was like every light bulb clicked off. So I think every one of those 20 things, like, oh, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And that's where it really began to take root. And then on top of that, that was about the same time that I contacted you guys and said, would you help me to understand me a little bit better. And then over this last year with COVID, a tremendously difficult time for me as a two. And you guys began helping me walk through my own uh, life and helping me understand it a lot better. And so it's been, it's been the last few years that I've gotten a lot more into it, especially this last year with you two being my coach in this area. Well, and let's just kind of go there for just a, a brief second and hearing how you guys have you know, gone through COVID because as a type two, your superpower and the weakness is that, you know, other people's needs and feelings and you want connection with others. You want to, you want to know that everything's okay. And so you have to be in connection with people to some point, but not just that, but also to move towards them. And COVID really shut a lot of that down. Now, obviously if you're an extroverted two, like Mark McElmurray, I know that this has been extremely hard for you because no one could go to work and you're the Dean of students. And you would, I remember you saying one of your greatest, um, or the things that you loved the most was to sit and see people walk outside your window and you would just get up and go out and give people hugs and listen to their stories. And all of that was shut down. So I'd love to just hear from you guys, how COVID has impacted you. Well, I'll just start back again because, yes, I, I'm sitting right in front of my window right now, and I'm seeing students go by. Just earlier this morning, someone came by, and I jumped out of my side office door here. I feel like I'm like my golden retriever so often because I just <laughs> want to be with people. So I am a high extrovert, and COVID really impacted me in that it uh, I, I couldn't now hug anybody. And it seemed like every time that I pass by somebody, I want to touch them. And uh, just know that I'm thinking about them. I couldn't go out to have meals with people. And, uh, and it's hard to intuit what someone is feeling and thinking behind this big mask that was covering most of their face. And so I wouldn't, I know it's hyperbole to say it was hell for me, but it did cause me to go into some depression over this last summer mm-hmm. because yeah. I was just not able to operate out of who I really, uh, what I felt like my gifts were to the kingdom of God. Yeah. We'll be back after a quick break. Moms, it's here. Registration is open for Enneagram for Moms cohort. Yes, from May 6th to May 13th, you can grab your spot to be in one of the cohorts with moms of the same Enneagram type, plus with a certified Enneagram coach leading the way. Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing to be with like-minded moms who really understand what it's like 
to be on your journey as a mom from your type? Yes, it will feel so validating, reassuring, affirming, encouraging. You don't have to mom alone anymore. Go to yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts to grab your spot today because there's only 25 spots available for each cohort. Now we have a cohort for all nine types in the daytime and one in the evening. But when the spots are filled up, they're gone. So grab your spot today at yourenneagramcoach.com forward slash cohorts. The groups start the week of June 10th and go until the week of July 29th. There are 90 minute sessions and there's eight of them. Plus you'll get a free Facebook group community where you can continue the conversation with one another. Join today. Right. So, Sawyer, tell us about when you came to understand that you were a two, but also can you elaborate on some of that experience of how COVID impacted you as a two, but also in a ministry setting? Sure. Yeah, COVID actually helped me finalize the fact that I was a two. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so thanks, COVID. Um, about four years ago, I had read the description for the two. You know, a couple of my friends were like taking this fun little test. Um, I think it was the Enneagram Institute's test or something like that. And I took it myself. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take it. I'd kind of read a little bit briefly of some descriptions and the two made me feel a lot of shame. Um, so I took the test and came up as a two and started reading it. I didn't even read the whole thing because I felt a lot of shame. Um, you know, I felt I was with some of my guy friends and I actually felt, and I know we'll get into this a little bit later, but actually felt like less masculine for being a two, um, like being someone who enjoys, you know, um, connecting with people and being emotional and being sensitive. And, um, (laughs) it's not super hard for me to cry. You know, like I felt like those were not masculine traits to have. Um, so I think I subconsciously just repressed it, which is hilarious because repression is our defense mechanism. Um, just kind of repressed that truth and just moved on with life. But yeah, what, Mark McElmurray was just saying um, about kind of putting it away for a while. And then right when the pandemic hit in March, uh, my girlfriend uh, sent me um, a copy of uh, The Road Back to You. I was like, hey, you need to read this. Or I'm sorry, she sent me The Sacred Enneagram by Chris Hewart. And then I ordered The Road Back to You. Um, And I read both books. And when I got to the twos in both books, I just cried. Um, I felt incredibly known and understood. Um, and it made a lot of sense as to why I was feeling so very lonely during COVID, um, and why I just had this overwhelming, overwhelming feeling to just hug my friends. Uh, and I couldn't, and that was so difficult for me. Um, yeah, something that was really helpful is like my buddy, Justin and I, uh, we talked on the phone almost every morning, um, just to like check in with each other and see how we're doing. But it was like kind of painful to talk to him because I just wanted to give him a hug and see him, you know? Yeah. Fitzy, what about you? Did you notice that, uh, COVID was impacting you? Um, actually, for me, it was a different um, scenario or a different way. Um, it was interesting because um, school, so teaching, you know, I'm a professor, teaching went all, all um, online and then counseling. So I have a counseling practice and those all went online. And, you know, I wasn't sure how that would go, but ultimately it went really well. There's certain aspects that don't go well but overall it went really well and so i was getting a lot of the same connection uh in a different way um and some real healing happening over you know zoom and so forth so personally i was getting all all of that it was hard at points you know not to see people in person but i was pretty tapped out though you know by the end of the day um each day because i was on zoom pretty constantly and uh um, so for me, it, it didn't really shift much at all. Well, and also I think a difference too, you know, you have little kids yeah. that are at home, your wife is at home, which yeah. you guys are so busy right, in right. your everyday life that this actually brought everyone back home yes. and you could actually spend more time with your family. Whereas yes. typically you've been busy with work outside or school outside. Yeah. And so for you, that's a little bit different than Mark McElmurray yeah. and Sawyer. Yeah, so I'd finish the day, and then the kids are all out, and we'd go have family time or so forth, which was you know really fun. Sometimes that got hard though because of the two-ness in me. I'd given everything to clients and you know in mm-hmm. classes, and then my kids, you know, need to be present with them and want to be, but need to be with them and my wife and so forth, um, which was wonderful. But at times that was hard, and again that 
that aspect of feeling, you know, selfish if I take, you know, my own time, which I'm sure we'll get into, but that really resonates with me as feeling really wrong, selfish that I'm doing something that isn't right if I have, you know, alone uh, time or so forth. So that was probably harder for me actually, you know, with COVID is trying to find any, you know, yeah. alone time because I was always on even though I was in my room, I was on, you know, Zoom. Yeah. Constantly. And there's so many different avenues that we could go down, but let's focus on the the core weakness of pride. And there's ambivalence there for the two, because in one sense, you you need rest, you need to take care of yourself, but you know it it ricochets on you, and it almost feels like it's you feel guilty for taking care of yourself and not giving more of yourself away. Um, And then what it comes across as oft sometimes to other people is that you don't have needs, but you're there to take care of other people's needs. And so it can land on other people as pride. Uh, Beth, why don't you just uh, very briefly just talk about pride again. And then I'd love to hear how you guys think about or experience this core weakness of the two. Yeah. So, you know, with pride for the two, there's this thought uh, that they should set aside their own thoughts feelings and emotions and solely focus on the needs and emotions of others and to move into it to, um, to assist, to help, to guide, to support, to nurture, to advise, um, others. Um, and the thing is, is like twos really have this incredible intuition that they do know. And you can imagine if you just kind of have this intuition of knowing what people's needs are it's hard not to be propelled forward, especially if you fear rejection that other people can, because we all think people do it the same way we do it. So the two is sitting there thinking, everybody else knows that Jane has a need and they know that I know Jane has a need. And if I don't move towards Jane and help Jane, everyone's going to see that I'm selfish and therefore I must move towards Jane so that I don't you know, lose, uh, love and, um, affection from others. Now the hard part with that for the twos is they, like I said, they do know, and this feeling and this fear of rejection overpowers them so much that they will insert their help even when it's not wanted. And that is where boundaries get crossed. And a lot of times twos don't even know that they're crossing these boundaries. They're so desperate to feel loved and wanted that they cross them without asking, Hey, do you want, you know, my help? Or do you want me to give you some advice? They just kind of give it because to them, it's like giving a gift, you know, like, well, of course you want a gift. Like here it is like, you know, I'm helping. And in fact, what can be hard for the two is the more the two actually becomes less healthy the more their pride surges and the more they feel good about their pride because they see that they're actually being more helpful and they feel they're being more helpful. And so, no, you've got it all wrong. I'm actually being helpful. But actually, it's when the two is most healthy that they realize not everybody is asking for my help in the way that I'm offering it. And I can ask, hey, would you like this or would you like some advice? Would you like me to assist you? And the hard part, and this is where the gospel transformation comes in, is that if the person says no, it's not that you aren't loved and wanted because ultimately Christ loves and wants you. So the two, when the two accepts that as their, the ultimate goal, the ultimate fulfilling, the two can ask others, do you want me to move in towards you with some helpful gift, advice, service, and they're okay with whatever the answer is because they've been filled by the love of Christ. And this is just an overflow versus feeling desperate to get it from others. So tell us about uh, your experience of pride or this dynamic of having needs, but also this desire to meet the needs of others. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here first. Um, when I first read that, and even years later, it was always hard to read that one. I thought, no, that's wrong. Because uh, pride, I had one view of pride. And so I'm like, no, yeah, they don't really, that's the one thing that doesn't really resonate. Um, But the more I understood it, it fit. But I think one of the things that was really hard to swallow was pride because I had always viewed myself, and I think this is an aspect of my own sin and self-protection is 
I'm the one that's going to meet I'm going to help other people and meet, you know, their uh, needs and prideful, arrogant uh, people. I, I would look you know, down upon often as like, yeah, that's bad. That's wrong. And then to see that that's what I was really dealing with in my own self was really hard to kind of swallow, but it was helpful too to recognize I need others as well. And I know that intellectually and from a biblical perspective, but I think what happens too is because we are so able to see others and want to help others. Like I love sitting with people and listening, you know, clients or friends, whether I was, you know, a little boy all the way to, you know, now I love to hear people help people be a safe place. And not a lot of people are really, you know, good, uh, uh, good at that. And so historically I figured mm -hmm. out it's just better for me not to share because people aren't going to be able to navigate that well. I can share. They're helped. I feel good and so forth. And that, yeah, there's an arrogancy, I think, in that, or I'd say, you know, the pride in that, that I've learned to really try to push yeah. against. But it's really hard to, because if I let people uh, know, you know, my needs, it feels uh, selfish. It feels wrong. It's hard to explain, I think, to other people. I think twos, most of us mm -hmm. get that, but it's just hard. It feels wrong. So I've had to really, yeah. you know, push against that and head to that healthy uh, mm -hmm. for, uh, for um, but it's hard. It's real hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mark McAmory. Yeah. And I think for me, yeah, no, I think it's hard to see it as pride because it feels so right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, but yes, like, like Mark said, I do, as I've understood it more, it, it makes sense. But for me, the pride is that with my fear core being rejected and, uh, this aching feeling I'm going to be too much for someone that they're, I'm not going to be available to them. I think that's one of the other things is being available. Like last night we had a big graduation celebration, worked all day, started from 7 AM to 9 PM, got home about, about nine o'clock last night. And I just want, I just went outside and read on the mm -hmm. front porch and uh, the brothers Karamazov great book. And then read on the front porch and, but my wife and my son were sitting inside watching a really good TV show. And I heard them in there and it was hard for me to just sit outside and relax because I feel like I was failing the whole time mm -hmm. and I couldn't just rest and be present to take care of myself because I, am I not being present for them? Should I be inside? 100%. And so it's that give total. Yes. And it's that, I think that's where my pride can come in. They're fine. They don't need, everyone doesn't need me all the time. Yes. Well, and uh, it, see if this lands on you guys. Most twos feel they need permission to take care of themselves. You know, like someone to say, hey, it's okay. Go take care of yourself. You know, go take a walk, go read, go whatever. Does that resonate with you guys? Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I was going to say, as far as Very much so. the pride, I, I, first of all, I like, <laughs> I'm just like over here nodding my head <laughs> vigorously at what Mark Squared is saying. Um, because I just like, I'm just so resonating so much. Um, it's really interesting. I, I've been thinking a lot about the pride and how I feel like pride is like this pillar in my life, um, that has just built over years that the Lord is slowly, slowly chipping away. And I feel like I keep seeing this pillar from a new angle. <laughs> like every week it feels like I'm seeing this, this pillar from a new angle and there's a new angle of pride here. Um, and so while I fully agree with like feeling like, um, you know, maybe it's selfish to uh, take care of myself and, and the pride of that. I feel like there's an, another aspect of the pride too, where um, I don't acknowledge my own sin as much and my own problems as much. So I don't, I don't work on myself as much. Like the whole, like work on your, you know, work your salvation through fear and trembling. Right. Mm -hmm. um, like, like the aspect of, um, uh, what is it? Active sanctification. Is that the, is that the one where like, we're, you know, we're kind of working in, in our sanctification as well, mm -hmm. um, through the spirit. And just as this like subtle belief that, that underlies that for me of, yeah. you know, my sin doesn't have the same consequences as others, or my own problems are not as bad as everyone else's. Um, as if I don't need to work on myself because I'm not as bad as everyone else. 
does this land on you? So our daughter, you know, we noticed, you know, in our family dynamics that when she Are had you done about to out your daughter, yes, I am. Well, she, well, she would totally say this on the show too. She doesn't listen to the podcast, so we can say whatever we want. But I love this insight that she gave us because she always struggled, and I and I do too, compared to you, struggled to apologize, even though she knew she had done something wrong. And when we were able to ask her in a curious way at a time, you know, where she's not, you know, all emotional about it and just asking, why is it so hard? And she said, I'm afraid that if I say I'm sorry, it will be then clear that I had done something wrong. And there's that rejection, like, well, if you see that I did something wrong, then you have more reason to reject me. So it's hard to actually admit to see it and admit it. Does that kind of land on you guys as well in the same way? Yeah, I've always felt like it's it's harder for me to say that I'm sorry because it admits it admits you know that I that I screwed up, um, and if if I screw up, then maybe people aren't going to love me. You know, maybe they're not going to want me. Who want who wants to screw up? For me, it's it's not been the case. I think I probably am more inclined to say I'm sorry too much and take mm-hmm. on the blame too much because that's easier for me uh, because I want to keep peace and I don't want them to yes. reject me. And so I would really just say sorry and let's keep moving on. Which doesn't allow me to, because there's probably sometimes I shouldn't. Sometimes we need to it's engage like the in it. But opposite error, sure. But That's still right. behind it is, I, I don't want to be yeah. objective. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'll be too much yeah, for I them. Think, um, in high school, um, especially, you know, memories. You know, you're gonna, or you know, you're asking about that as well early on. In high school, especially, I would say I'm sorry, I'm sorry all the time to friends and everybody, and people would go, "Dude, why are you saying sorry all the time?" And it was, it was, it was, it was not good. It wasn't healthy. It was this, this uh, people pleasing aspect. So it's kind of the opposite in a sense. And then, then I really mm-hmm. checked on that and really began to change that and really, okay, when do I really need to, you know, own it versus yes. where I've actually hurt somebody or sinned against them rather than trying to please them where it's about me, not really yeah. them. And this is one of the insightful things about the Enneagram is that, whether we're apologizing or not apologizing, repenting or not repenting, the the motive behind that act or not pursuing that act is so important than just the behavior or the act itself. Right. I mean, we could have a whole episode and walk the wheel on how each of the types uh, misunderstand uh, repentance and reconciliation, Mm -hmm. uh, how it serves uh, fleshly strategies in their heart but also what does true repentance look like for each type? Uh, so th- I, yeah, that's a, that one's yeah. for free, everybody on <laughs> understanding twos and repentance. Can I just say one, <laughs> one more thing? I think, um, I think as our, our weakness here, whatever we call it, the, you know, the two and the pride and so forth, I think it can be a much more subtle uh, problem than maybe some of the other. And so we can kind of hide behind that and kind of have a pride and we don't have a lot of trouble and it's this vicious kind of cycle in a sense and we're like we're okay we're just gonna hang back help people pull back help people and we're not as it's not as obvious our sins we don't you know usually do anything that's real harmful or hurtful on an obvious level it's much more you know subtle and i think that's where um it's even hard for us to um uh I see that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was going to say when I coach twos, a lot of times that's actually the the trouble I run into is their pride gets in the way of them seeing the things they need to work on. They think, oh, no, I don't have any of these issues or, you know, oh, or no, that's they, not yeah, that bad. My, my kids say I should get coaching. I, I think I'm fine and I love my kids well, but they really think I need help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they think I, I'm helping too much or, you know, and, and, and again, I think that's helpful for twos to know and to note. And it's not that we want to fully expose and for you to feel that. That's not it at all. We actually want you to feel the fullness of Christ's love for you, no matter how well or not well you're doing, because his love doesn't change. But if we don't recognize the things that we're doing that might be harming others, it actually is the very thing. It's kind of a self-sabotage, right? So, you know, if you're over helping or over nurturing because you you want something in return, it's actually going to create the distance that you fear. It's like me as a type nine, I avoid conflict, which actually creates conflict, you know? And so we have to recognize these weak spots that each of us have, not for the exposure itself, but for the restoration and the, the healing and the transformation. 
Yeah, I was just going to say one of the things that has helped me a lot, and we teach this uh, covenant, and and uh, Schaefer was a big Francis uh, Schaefer was a big influence, and this is the issue of uh, dignity and uh, depravity. That you know, all of us have dignity. You know, uh, created in the yeah. image of God, Genesis one and two, and then you know the fall, and so they're both there, and I think. As a two, it's been helpful just to think of that. You know, there's so much good in the two, or or you know, whatever yes. type we are. But then, where is the uh, uh, depravity aspect, and where does God want me to grow in you know uh, uh, sanctification? Well, and that's what we want all of our types to know is that we're not wanting you to stop being a two. We don't want you to stop nurturing and caring and loving people and and knowing what their needs are. It's why we're doing it that we need to be mindful of. Is it that we are desperate to get something from someone, therefore we're giving? Or have we gotten so much from Christ that we're filled up that it's an overflow of our heart? That's the biggest difference. Kind of another angle of that pride that, I was, that I've was that i been thinking about a lot recently um, is what Mark uh, Fitzy just said about um, kind of almost this belief that we can be anything to anyone. <laughs> um, you know, if, if someone has a need, I can fill it. Like I will be able to fill whatever needs I see, um, and that that in itself isn't is there's uh, pride totally in there, and and this belief that I'm more than I actually am, right? Um, not being humble, which um, I heard I think Ian Cron once said it, then it just really stuck with me. Like the opposite of pride is humility, right? And but what it means to be humble is to be yourself, like this aspect of being real about who you actually are, right? With your weaknesses and your flaws, so. Mm. Well, one of the reasons why we've invited you all here is that there is a, a stereotype of a two. Um, uh, Sawyer mentioned it a little bit when he was talking about when he discovered a two and some of his resistance to it. Um, is this idea of being a man and being a two. Um, how is it that you guys think about that? Was there ever any a, t- a moment where you thought, well, the, there, there are definitely some attributes of two that as a man I don't resonate with. Or do you find people treating you differently or uniquely because you're a two and because you're a man? Yeah, um, I'll go first here. I kind of building upon what I was saying earlier, all throughout high school, I mean, middle school and high school, all of my friends were girls (laughs) for the most part um, because the guys didn't really like me all that much. Um, They thought that I was effeminate and um, they didn't think that I was manly, right? I, I didn't really... I also just so happened not to really enjoy things like paintball or airsoft, which is what all of my guy friends were playing. And, um, and so I remember like feeling really alienated in that way. And again, this whole like desire for connection and being a two and, and wanting to have relationship, um, and like prioritizing relationships. I think that's how you put it, Beth, um, is that twos prioritize relationships. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of my guy friends didn't. Um, and so I often felt very rejected by them. So I kind of just hung out with all the girls. Um, because they liked me, you know, I was more sensitive mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. and, and caring and, and warm. So yeah, I, I feel like men in our society mm-hmm. are not helpers. Um, we're supposed to be these independent, like islands who are, you know, emotionally unaffected and strong and, um, brutal, sometimes, uh, aggressive. Um, I really, really, most of my life, I felt like, um, <laughs> men are expected to be what we expect sevens or eights or threes to look like, right? Um, these more aggressive stance types. Mm-hmm. Um, for me specifically, it was interesting because in my home, I have two wonderful parents who really honored my sensitivity and my friendliness and my outgoing heart. So I felt kind of confused by the polarization, you know, of society and like all of my friends. And then what I was hearing at home, like home, it's like, it's okay to be sensitive. It's okay to be the way that you are. You know, my dad's a seven and he's a very, um, very emotional person. Um, and so he was always really sensitive and like a a fairly good listener. Um, and then my mom's a nine, so she's very intuitive, you know? So it's kind of like this whole, like, I grew up where it's like, it's okay to have feelings and, and, and be emotional and to let things affect you and be sensitive, have sensitivity. Um, but in society it was saying that's Mm -hmm. not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it felt, it felt very, very confusing in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. for me, um, so I grew up, uh, an athlete and had a lot of friends, uh, 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 male friends and loved or was planning to go in, 
the military. So I had definitely that bent, but I was very much a connector. So I connected a lot of friends. Um, I think what also helped or was a part of this too is, so so uh, um, I grew up and some of you might hear this as I'm um, uh, talking, I had a, a, a severe uh, speech impediment as a child and all the way through uh, college and past college. And that really forced me to um, um, listen well and ask uh, people about themselves. So I learned, I think, from that to to be uh, present and to hear people. And so it became a, it wasn't seen, I don't think, in a negative light. It was actually seen in, in a, a positive way. In the um, uh, settings I've been in, especially the last uh, 20 years, it's been uh, in a, a, a seminary counseling setting where all of this is seen in a good light. It's it's actually seen in a good way. If you're, mm-hmm. you know, a male who's a pastoral mm-hmm. heart, uh, with a pastoral heart, it's seen as a good thing. So I haven't seen it you know, in a negative way. And I've also framed it. Also, I sure. think, yeah. you know, Jesus, some of his spiritual warfare, his some of his most powerful um, uh, things that where he he, uh, pushed against Satan and his work, you know, in the kingdom of Satan was presence, his presence with, with, you know, the, the uh, woman at the well, you know, the Samaritan woman, he's gentle, he's kind, Mm -hmm. he says some hard things, but like, that's a, that's a battle. I mean, that's battle, but it's in a you know sensitive way. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, so I've been able to kind of see that as a very, very uh, powerful thing, even though it looks maybe, maybe uh, you know, gentle, soft, more, uh, I'm effeminate from a cultural mm-hmm. standpoint. It's actually mm-hmm. the opposite. You know, for me, I, it was, it first came about, uh, I was probably 24, 25 young leader, And I was told that uh, I was like most female women in America, my personality. And it wasn't through the Enneagram, so it wasn't they were labeling me as a two. But you can imagine what that does to a 24, 25-year-old leader when you see all the other leaders around you being a certain way or at least seeming a certain way, and all you can see is what you're not. And so I would say for the first number of years of my in leading in ministry, it was always out of a place of what is wrong with me instead of a place of I'm celebrating me. And it wasn't until 2004 when I went into this period of burnout and depression from ministry that it was coming out of that. I began to understand myself and begin to move to a place of of celebrating. I think for me, it was just always so exhausting, though, trying to be what everybody wanted me to be for them. So even though I was kind of what you was kind of the manly man. I was hunting, fishing, woodworking, Mm -hmm. working on vehicles, all that sort of stuff. Inside of me, I was still the one that was crying at commercials and intuiting what everybody was feeling all around me and just exhausted all the time internally, but not knowing because I didn't have a family that was able to help me to process my emotions or feelings. And so I was feeling all these things, but it really didn't have any other outlets except for in unhealthy ways. Well, thanks. Uh, each of you for sharing so vulnerably mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, you know, we we all have uh, questions and thoughts and experiences around our gender mm-hmm. um, from various perspectives, but it just in the Enneagram world, um, uh, eight females, which you have heard us uh, talk about uh, in a previous podcast, uh, there's something about being a male too that just comes up a lot in conversation. So thanks being, for being a help. Mm-hmm. But one last question that we'd like to ask each of you is uh, this is your opportunity to teach people how to love a type two. So what do you, what, what's one thing that, or two things, I'll give you two or uh, you, all, all of us are in ministry. So let's go three. <laughs> it's, it's not a survey unless we get three points. So what's a few things that, you would want people to know what you wish people to know about being a type two. And, you know, even it doesn't have to be about being a male type two, but if that would be helpful, I I know there's a lot of men out there that would love to know that as well. Um, One of the things that I think I has been the most helpful thing for me to know. And I think is the most helpful thing for my friends and family to know is that we're mirrors. Um, Is that (laughs) 
what you are feeling, <laughs> uh, typically type twos are going to feel that with you. Um, so if I, um, if I have a friend who is really down in the dumps, I'm, I'm going to go right there with them. You know, I'm going to sit there with them for a bit and it's going to, it's going to be hard. And I have, I actually have right. no problem sitting there with him for a long time if we need to. Um, and I can leave that and I can feel really depressed and sad myself. <laughs> um, and then if someone asks me how I'm doing, you know, uh, it can be really hard for me to identify what my own feelings are because I tend to mirror what the feelings are of those around me and those that I'm in close relationship with. Um, so that being said, in conflict with people, it's very hard for me to articulate what mm-hmm. I am feeling with people in those moments. Um, and then maybe this is like yeah. point two of what I would want people to know. Um, I usually need a couple of days to like figure out what I am feeling because I'm feeling a lot of things, but I don't know if they're my feelings <laughs> or your feelings. And it's very frustrating. Um, but again, I think that's the, you know, it's the other side of the coin of being able to be empathetic and, and enter into other people's sufferings with them. Um, yeah, I don't know. It marks, do you guys relate to that at all? Yeah, I was going to say, um, yes, very much. So I think one of the things again, Beth and, uh, uh Jeff, you know, asking this, it kind of hits me. Well, okay. So I have to tell you what I want, my needs. That's, I think why we all went blank is we're all like, uh, we don't need anything or, you know, um, cause we give, uh, so I think that literally that was, I think, part of probably for all of us. Um, I think for me, uh, one of the things that's happened a lot over time and uh, friends that we get together um, at points uh, when they come in town and what will happen a lot, it's happened many, many times after we, you know, we're hanging out, having a beer or whatever. And uh, we've talked for a while, you know, like an hour or two. And then they say, hey, you know, Fitzy, you never talked or, or you never, you know, shared. And it's it's not because I don't uh, want to, it's they've shared so much about uh, them and I've asked them about them because I genuinely want to know and I able to connect with that. And so I think twos need people to pursue them and think about others besides themselves sometimes. Cause I think a lot of times that can be, you know, what plays out is they just talk, talk, and the two ask good questions and go deep. And then the conversation's over and the two is never really listened to. And the two's kind of okay with that, but there's this part of them that's like, man, I wish somebody would uh, you know, engage that or pursue, but that's okay. Um, Cause that's what we do. And so forth. So I think that pursuit of us. And what, like, just keep, keep going with that. Mark, you know, because a two, if I were to ask a two, you're like, well, what are you feeling or what are you thinking? What's your life like? They might say something for like a minute or two, if that, and push it back on to the other person. What would be a loving way to kind of help, quote unquote, corral the two that, no, we really want to hear from you and it not feel that the two is being selfish? What would be a way to pull them and, and draw them out? Yeah, I think if it's a safe friendship or so forth is to really talk about even that dynamic of like, I really want to know you, but what happens is you share and then you quickly turn it, maybe not purposely, but then you ask me about me a good question and then we're off and running. And so can we be aware of this mm-hmm. uh, dynamic that happens and can we push against that? Is that okay with you? And I think it too, if they were pursued in that way, it would still be hard, but I think it would yeah. mean a lot That's good. to them. I think uh, one other thing I was going to say is uh, um, letting us know uh, it's okay to have our own, you know, time, you mm-hmm. know, alone. And it's not that we need permission and people have to be, you know, um, you know, codependent or trying to help us in that way. But I think it's it is it can be so hard for us to have you know space. Right. And, you know, self-care, it feels so wrong and selfish. So I think with good, you know, friendships, you know, families or family members who can say, hey, take your time. Yeah. It's okay. That that really, you know, is yeah, helpful. It eases the guilt of the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that we don't have to deal with that yeah. ourselves. It's not it's not on the other person. But I think having a good conversation about that can really, you know, begin a healing process good. as well. Yeah. Michael Murray, what about you? Well, there are three things that quickly came to my mind, and one is uh, 
having people understand how hard it can be being us sometimes. Mm. I think any number could probably say that. Yeah. But I think for me to understand that every crowd that I go into, I'm intuiting the whole time. Yes. I can't go to church without wondering, oh, I wonder if that couple had a fight this morning or wondering this happened to this. It's like it is so exhausting for me to go into social settings because the entire time I'm just intuiting everything. And it, it's exhausting. And most times I just want to shut down because hmm. I, I get I get like overloaded and I just can't do it anymore. And so right. I just want to go in a corner. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the, the second thing for me is conflict. Uh, two things. One, stay with me. Mm. Oftentimes, since I begin emoting, because when, when start when things, because again, this fear I'm going to be left, this fear you're not going to love me, it's just going to be firing at all levels. And so it's going to bring up these emotions. So I'm going to probably emote. But if people, and it can happen in, whether it's with my wife or whether it's in meetings here at the seminary, if I know you're not going to leave me, and you're going to stay there and you're going to be able to work through that. That's just understanding me. Mm -hmm. Again, it doesn't give me carte blanche to just emote all over the place. That's not what I'm saying. I'm responsible for that. But there will be times. And if you stay with me, uh, I'll get to what it was I was really thinking and believing. But it might take me a few things. And I maybe didn't even mean the first five things that I said. But I had to get there. In order to get there to the good place, I had to say those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... I think the last thing for me it was really is knowing that it's hard, similar to what Mark Fitzy said, it's hard to take time for me. I think for uh, for my wife, you know, when my bride can put her hand on my arm and just touch me and say, sweetie, it's okay. You know, that can be in a conflict. When she touches my arm, it says, honey, you're not in trouble, but we need to talk about some things. And I'll just, I, I, it almost melts me. And it puts me in a different place. And so just her giving me that permission, you know, like Mark said, it's like we have to also engage in our own stuff. I'm not putting placing them on her. But when she knows that it's really hard for me, I'm thinking especially my bride, when she knows that it's really hard for me, her giving me that permission is so life-giving. Yeah. And it gives me the freedoms to just be for a little while. Even though I can take time away, uh, that's different from – uh, not feeling guilty about taking time away. Sure. Yeah. 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 I would, uh, yeah, I would just echo that. And can I add sure. one more thing? I think with twos, especially um, three wings. So I'm a three wing that, that can get really problematic. I mean, there's a lot about that, that I love. The problem is, is I can help and try to do it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And then when you're in the helping, you know, profession, counseling or so forth, you have need, there's plenty of needs, plenty of people hurting, and I want to help them, and I can get you know, overloaded, and so being careful of that, but I think that that uh, wing aspect can really help you know, understand where that can head in a really yeah. bad place, where I've, I have been in, you know, numerous places overloaded, and, and you know, panic attacks begin to happen, because I'm just have so yeah. much people yes. I have to help. And some of that's, or, you know, a lot of that's, you know, on me and not having healthy boundaries uh, there. One thing but. that I was curious about now, I, I don't want to make a bigger point. So don't hear what I'm not saying, but I am curious about it. Uh, physical touch is very significant to our daughter. Um, and Mark, you mentioned it about your wife just touching you on your arm in an intense moment. Is that true, both Fitzy and Sawyer? Is that true for you guys as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I um, physical touch is like one of the biggest ways that I think enters into shame. Um, I think something that twos don't like to admit is that we feel deep shame, <laughs> um, that we mm -hmm. really wrestle with shame. And so um, when people move towards me physically with a hug um, or even a handshake or an arm on my shoulder. Um, I mean, kind of like um, Michael Murray was just saying, like how that kind of just melts him. Like, I feel like all my defenses just go down and I'm like, oh, clearly mm. this person wants me. Right. Um, mm. They're not, they're not oh, grossed absolutely. out or not, not um, disgusted with me. They don't, they, they want mm. to touch me. That, that is like so healing to me. Wow. 
Pitsy? Amen. Yeah, I was just going to say what what uh, Mark said about uh, his wife. Yeah, just that simple touch, you know, by my wife on my hand or just, or, you know, my arm or whatever, just saying, you know, I'm here with you. Because I get, you know, for, I think, you know, for us, we're the always on for everybody else. And like and Mark said, you know, we read the room, we can just feel it. It's like, you know, sensors going off. And so to have somebody be present and just, you know, have their hand on you, you say, hey, it's okay, or whatever, is kind of disarming and helps you kind of melt. Well, I wonder if it's not just the physical touch, but you're also feeling their generosity and compassion towards you because it's, yeah. it's coming through the touch. Yeah, and that you matter, and it's I'm focused on you. Yeah, That's really hard, and, and that touch kind of says that, I think. Yeah. So we had, um, we, we've met Dr. Chapman, the founder of love languages and so <laughs> one way that the enneagram is better than love languages is that we have uh nine and he only has five so <laughs> if we're going simply by numbers we went, go by numbers <laughs> but number two though the myers-briggs yeah, has 16 that's, and we have nine. Oh, <laughs> so i guess we can't go off yeah that. but we've got mm-hmm. all the subtypes we've got <laughs> wings we can be yeah oh, there you go stink. well uh, but then secondly the the enneagram informs touch physical touch is a love language right it's not it, it's what the touch means to the two which i think is really the inside if if because I, I don't want to say that all type twos have a love language of physical touch right, right. I, we can't say that yet it is definitely an observable theme but no proof yet but i i think it does speak to physical touch means something particular to a two mm-hmm. uh, which is very insightful so whenever you, you may be married or maybe one of your children that <laughs> to understand that physical touch is a part of being able to uh, organize mm-hmm. and to create safety for the type two that's in your life. And that's not just for a woman. That's also for um, men in your life. Well, so. I laugh because during COVID, when we were all shut down, Libby, who has lots of friends that love to give hugs and that's just the way they are. Um, touch and gifts are like the bottom for me, like way down. Like I, I don't really need touch, you know? And so during COVID shutdown, when she couldn't be with anyone else, but her family, I would have to consciously be aware, like Beth, you need to give her a hug. And it's not that I don't, I love her to death, but that just not, it's just doesn't what naturally comes to my mind with anyone in our family. And so I could see how much that meant to her. And especially because she knew who I am, like, that's just not my thing. And how much more that meant that I would consciously think of her and, and give her, and we would laugh, you know, and enjoy it and stuff like that. But I do agree. I think those that are in relationship with twos, it doesn't mean you have to go giving them all hugs. Again, it could be a shake in the hand. It could be a arm or a hand on the shoulder or something to say, I not only really see you, but I want to communicate that I care about you. Yeah. So are we going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's another thing, jumping back a little bit of what makes it hard to be a male too as well. Mm-hmm. Men are not mm-hmm. as free <laughs> because of you know toxic masculinity. Men are not as free to move towards one another in hugs or to move towards other people physically Um, and, you know, just to express care for someone else um, in a physical way. Um, So that's, I mean, that has absolutely always been a thorn for me all of my life growing up. um, People would get the wrong idea by the fact that I was so physically affectionate, you know. Now, granted, I needed to be wise with (laughs) how physically affectionate Mm -hmm. I am, of course. Right. right? Um, But yeah, I've I've always felt very misunderstood in that way for sure. Mm. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for spending time with us, uh, sharing about some of the internal world that maybe people don't see all the time. And uh, as these misunderstood episodes uh, have come out, uh, people have, particularly twos, are going to be so thankful that you've said these things mm-hmm. forever because it's what they've wanted to say to other people. And those who have twos in their lives and want to love them well, uh, you are a great teacher to uh, what that's going to mean. So we're so grateful for each of you and just the fact that you're in our lives uh, in various ways, but uh, you matter to us. Your insights are so helpful. And thanks so much for doing the tough work of understanding your own interior world so that it's a gift for everybody else. So thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff and Beth.